I'm reading from the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, from the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, I would like um, you to follow the reading of verses 1 through 15. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young man, men arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her. King James has it, and Peter answered her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord... Wait a minute, I jumped one. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you've agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That must be the understatement of the centuries. And at the, at the hands of the apostles... Many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them, however. The people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the, in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were con constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Does this story seem out of place to you? It seems like somebody has tampered with the script to me. I mean, after all, this church is just so much under the control of the Holy Spirit and so many remarkable things are happening under the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, boom, it seems like somebody's flipped the channel and has tuned us in on the plot of a different narrative. All of a sudden, we find these two people who are conceiving this plan, who, who plan to lie against the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't seem the right place for that, doesn't it? does it? I mean, how could this be? I think I've noticed that 
the nature of the Christian service, Christian life and service is such that it lends itself to hypocrisy. I think I have noticed that the nature of the Christian life and worship is such that it's so easy to pretend to be hypocritical, to be insincere in worship. It just lends itself to that. Now the author of this book begins the first, chapter, the first word of chapter 5 with a word of contrast, the word but. And what he's doing in chapter 5 is contrasting this couple with Barnabas of chapter 4. Now Barnabas was a remarkable man. He had such a quality of life and spirit and worship about him that the apostles gave him a nickname. They called him the son of encouragement. And everything he did was an encouragement to the church. Everybody knows what Barnabas did. He was a man of means, so he took some of his, he took his property and he sold it and he brought the money and he gave it to the church out of compassion to dispense among those who had been ravaged by the persecution of the time. And it just automatically, instantly exalted him in the eyes of the church. I mean, they almost revered him. But there were two people who were agitated by what Barnabas did, at least two. I imagine Ananias talking with his wife one night as they fixed their TV dinner. Now, honey, I, I, I'm just sick and tired of this old Barnabas stuff. I mean, it's Barnabas this and Barnabas that, good old Barnabas. I've had it up to here with Barnabas. And Safari probably said, honey, you ought to have been at WMU meeting today. I went to Circle meeting and all they could talk about was Barnabas this and Barnabas that. And there was this agitation. And I think that this agitation really hides something else. I think it hides a jealousy and envy in their heart. And they were saying, we're just sick and tired of good old Barnabas. Well, what they were really saying was this, I wish I could be looked upon. I wish I had the respect. I wish I could be revered as this man is revered. And so they hit on this plan. They decided they'd take their property and sell it, but they wouldn't give it all to the church. Under the, under the pretense of giving it all, they brought part of it to the church, and God struck them dead. Now I want you to get the point of this story. The remarkable thing about this story is not that God killed them for, for what they did. The remarkable thing about this story is this, that the Holy Spirit was so in control in that church that pretense and insincerity and hypocrisy could not exist. I tell you, hypocrisy could not live in the fine, clear, rarefied air of those heights. And, the, and, and insincerity could not survive where the Holy Spirit was in control. I live with a strong conviction that one of the great barriers to the ongoing of the church, to the, to, to the Spirit-filled life, to a Christian living triumphantly is this sin of insincerity, the sin of hypocrisy, the sin of pretense. And so this passage talks about, talks about it in five ways. Now take heart. I'm not going to preach through the first quarter. I know the kickoff's at 12, so I, you, you take heart. There are five points in this. I'm going to deal with it in a lot of time. First of all, the sin of insincerity is prompted by the devil. Now Peter said to Ananias, why did you allow Satan to fill your, fill your heart with this deed? It's interesting. 
that that word filled there is the same word that, he, that Paul uses in his epistle when he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart with this terrible thing? And it's in the passive voice which suggests that they gave their consent. It wasn't that the devil made them do it. He gave, they gave their consent to it. Now the devil prompted them to lie to God and to others, but they gave their consent to that prompting. It leads me to believe that the devil owns no property in your heart and life that you've not permitted him to have. And he claims no power in you that you've not given him permission to have. It's no surprise that Satan prompted these two to do this at a time when the church is flourishing and growing. For as a matter of fact, if you study the book of Acts, you will find that at least in the beginning, Satan had two strategies to defeat the church. The first thing he decided he would do to destroy the church was to bring external persecution. That didn't destroy the church. As a matter of fact, the church flourished under persecution. Someone writing about those preachers who preached under that terrible hardship of persecution said, and if they burn them, they just God to just take the song from their parched lips and carry on. And if they kill them, the angel of, resurre of the resurrection would stand over their grave saying, He is not here, He is risen. I mean, they, the church was not defeated by persecution. Forbush has edited the book called Fox Book of Martyrs describing the martyrdom of the early church. That book was chained, it was required to be chained to every pulpit in every church in England in the, in the first part of this, of, this, of this age. And Forbes says in that book that the church flourished under the persecution being firmly rooted in the apostles' doctrine and watered plenteously by the blood of the martyrs. He found out he couldn't destroy the church by external persecution. So he went to the heart and he brought about internal pollution. He went to the heart. Somebody said that if America dies, she'll commit suicide. He means that we don't die from the, from the iniquity and the hatred from without. We die from the indifference and the insincerity from within. And he went to the heart. Now what he decided to do was to bring about this envy and jealousy that exposes itself in chapter 6 with a rift in the fellowship of the church and rears its head up in chapter 5 with the sin of insincerity. Insincerity is prompted by the devil. Secondly, the sin of deception or hypocrisy is premeditated. Now he says in, in verse 4, Why have you conceived this deed in your heart? Verse 2, he says that Sapphira knew this was happening in the full knowledge of his wife. It was a conspiracy. It was premeditated. Now watch this. You never drift into hypocrisy. You never drift into hypocrisy. You remember when Moses went up to the, on the mount to meet God? And so great was God upon his life that the glory of God shined so brilliantly that Moses had to put a veil over his face so the people could look on him. So great was the glory of God upon his life. And there was a time as Moses wore this veil when the glory departed and Moses kept the veil over his face no longer because he wanted to hide the glory of God 
but because he wanted to hide the fact that the glory was gone. And when the people saw the veil on Moses' face, they thought, everything's fine. Our leader's walking with God. He wore a veil to hide. Let me ask you a question. Are you wearing a veil? I thought about what veils people wear. Here's one. Here's a man so full of God, he just praises the Lord all the time. He's just so full of God, he comes to church and, and the preacher says something, it just stirs him, he says amen. He sings the hymns with great gusto and something happens and that glory's gone. But he doesn't want the folks to know what he's really like. So he keeps on saying praise the Lord. He keeps on saying amen. And he keeps on singing the songs with the same gusto. But they're not from the heart. The glory has departed. Veils are what we wear to keep people from knowing the truth about our spiritual condition. Let me ask you a second question. Are you trying to live up? Are you just trying to live up to what you used to be? When Israel stepped over the Jordan, God said, I want you to take 12 stones, one from each tribe. I want you to put them there. The place was Gilgal, probably in a circle. He said, I want you to put these stones there. And when the children, when your children ask you one day, what meaneth these stones? You can say, these are a memorial to what God is doing. Now they were the present tense witness of a past tense experience. They were the present tense testimony of a past tense result. They were something that God did in the past that was reaching over into the present. I'm asking you this morning, is there any present tense witness to God's coming into your life in the past? Past experiences are wonderful, but they have no value really unless there's a present tense witness of that past tense result. Are you just trying to live up to what you used to be? Third, the sin of insincerity is the sin of pretending. It's prompted by the devil, it's premeditated, it's pretending. Now, I've heard a lot of names given to the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. I heard a guy preaching revival. He said, they, 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 he, he said their sin was the sin of the unpardonable sin. That is, they blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and God struck them dead. I've even heard this text preached in stewardship emphasis and people say you better tithe and leave the, you know, leave the rest up to your own imagination, you know. I've had all kinds of sermons preached, heard all kinds of sermons preached on this. Maybe there's a germ of truth in all of that, but let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what this sin was. This sin was the sin of pretending to be something you're not. Now there's an interesting thing happens in verse 8. Sapphira comes in and the King James has it that Peter answered her. Well, New American Standard translates it responded to her. He answered her. Well, she didn't say anything. You notice that? He answered her, but she didn't say anything. Yes, she did. Her entrance was her speech. Now, it is obvious that what Ananias and Sapphira thought was this, that if they do this, if they pretend this, if they, if they go through the motions here and make it look like one way when it's a different way, then people respond to us a different way. They'll revere us. They'll exalt us in their eyes. We'll be somebody special. It is obvious that they thought they're going to respond to us a certain way. And so when Safari came in, she came strutting in. She looked so spiritual. That, that, you've seen that. You've seen them, haven't you? 
It sound like anybody you know. I mean, she looks so spiritual. She rolled her eyes back probably and just had that pious, spiritual look on her face. Boy, she was looking great. She, she looked so great. That's what hypocrisy is. You know the word means wear a mask, don't you? That's what the word hypocrite means, wearing a mask. She thought, I'll put on this mask and everybody will see me different than the way I am. Holy cow, as, as uh, that sports announcer said, when that happened, God came in death. It's saying to God, I've put everything on the altar when you haven't. It's saying to God, I've given everything when you've only given a part. It's saying, I've made a total commitment and you've only made a partial one. It's saying, I'm walking with God when you're not. It's a sin of pretending. You know the condition of being filled with the Holy Spirit, of being triumphant in the Christian life? You know the first condition? It's to get honest with God. It's to be transparent. It's to be honest with God and yourself. little girl said, Jesus lived his life inside out. I like that. She meant that what he was on the outside was what he was on the inside. What they saw on the outside was what he really was on the inside. Are you living your life inside out? Is what is on the outside really what is on the inside? Or is it just a mask? And the problem here is that the sin of insincerity is not just a lie to God. It is a lie to ourselves and it's so painful and tiring and frustrating to have to put on a mask all the time and pretend. It's getting honest with God. Fourth thing, the sin of insincerity paralyzes the church, the growth of the church, paralyzes the ministry of Jesus. Now here's this church on the move, on fire, and all of a sudden it just comes screeching to a halt. It's kind of like you see on television, these, this big locomotive coming down and somebody pulls the emergency card and it just comes grinding to a stop. I mean steel against steel, smoke and fire flashing everywhere. Somebody threw a wrench in the gears of this great thing that was happening. This church was, was more terrible than an army with banners. All of a sudden it was screeching to a halt. Now verses 12 and 14 say that the church began to grow again. So it was only temporary. But for a while this sin of hypocrisy and insincerity he brought the church to a stop. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua. And here is Israel in the land of promise, and they're just taking everything. They go to a city and they shout, and the walls come down. They move in, take over. You talk about moving out. And God says, now there is a ban list, B-A-N, there's a ban list. There's certain things you're not to take out of these villages for yourself. There's a ban list. Don't take any of those and keep them for yourself. Remember that. They came in to these cities and took them over. The next town was Ai, just a wide spot in the road. A lady came by my office this week looking for some information. She said she was from Ravioli or something like that, a little town over by Tishomingo. <laughs> that's what I said. I, that's what I did. I said, I, you know, I thought that's something you eat. She said, I'm 
She said, if you go to ravioli, said, you better, if you, if you got bad breaks, you'll miss our town because you'll just go right on past before you have a chance. To, I mean, you talk about a wide spot in the road. AI was one of those. Well, and really, I mean, who needs to go up there with a whole army? We'll just take a few thousand men up to AI and we'll take care of that. And they went up to AI and got beat, beaten. They were soundly defeated. Sixteen of their leaders were killed and they came home like cow dogs. Now, those of us who live in the New Testament stance, stand on the New Testament side, know the rest of the story, but Joshua didn't. We know the rest of the story. We know that there was a sin of insincerity. Somebody was hiding something from God and others. In the center of the camp of God, somebody had taken something and hidden it. It's the sin of hypocrisy. The sin of pretense was going on. Now Joshua went to God and he said, God, I don't understand this. You bring us into this nation and we get beaten by the little old town of Ai? Are you going to bring us into this nation and let us die in defeat? And God said to Joshua, Israel has sinned. And there's hypocrisy here. There's pretense here. There's insincerity here. You go into the tent of Achan and you'll find that there are those, there is one who is hiding something from me. It's amazing to me what happens to a church when that church starts getting honest with God. I went to preach a revival one time, a little old town. I mean, you talk about dead. That church was dead. It was cold. Preacher said to me, he said, you should have been here 10 years ago. Man, this thing was alive and well. I thought, boy, I wish I had it. It was dead. About the third service of that revival, a man came forward and he said, I've been living a lie. He said, I've been harboring resentment in my heart toward a member of this church. I've been pretending that I was in fellowship and I've just had all this animosity and hatred down here. He said, I need to get that right with God. Just a little bit later, a man came forward. He said, I've been living a lie. He said, I've known for years that I've never really been saved. He said, I've just been pretending that I'm a believer. He said, I've never really had an experience of salvation. I need to get my heart right with God. Let me tell you what revival came to that little town of Ai. It paralyzes the growth of the church. One last thought, please. One last word. Not only is the sin of insincerity prompted by the devil, premeditated, pretending, not only does it paralyze the church, but it will be purified by the Holy Spirit. Mark that down as the most important thing you'll hear today. The sin of insincerity the Holy Spirit will purify. Now I said at the outset in the introduction that the most remarkable thing about this story was that the Holy Spirit was in such control that hypocrisy could not survive there. That's true. God will deal with the sin of insincerity. Now you say, well, does that mean He's going to kill everybody who's insincere? No, and aren't you glad? Boy, I am. I mean, this story, this passage judges me more than anybody in this place. I am. Somebody said what they had in that first century church were not ushers, they had undertakers. If, they, if God dealt with the, the church today like He dealt with this church, we'd have to have a morgue in the basement. 
I'm glad he doesn't deal with us like that. But he is going to deal with the sin of insincerity. You can mark that down. And the reason why he dealt with that sin as he dealt with it in this church was because it was just the beginning of this New Testament church. It was just the beginning. There were signs and wonders being performed and God wanted the whole world to know how he felt about hypocrisy. He wanted the whole world to know how he disdained insincerity. That's why he dealt with it like he did. He's going to deal with it. The death may come in different forms. It may be the death of your prayer life. You say, well, I'm just, my prayer life is nothing. I'm just not reaching God. It may be that you're not being honest with God. It may be the death of your teaching life. You say, I'm just not getting through. I think I'll quit teaching. Maybe it's because you're hiding from God. You're trying to pretend to God and to others. You're not what you are, really. You know what you are. Maybe it's the death of fellowship. Maybe it's the death of your witness. But God will purify that when the Holy Spirit comes in to take control. A week ago last Saturday, I picked up the newspaper and nearly fainted. Headlines on a religious section of my newspaper, the Dallas Morning News, had the name of a, of a pastor of one of the leading churches in one of the leading cities in Texas. I mean, this wasn't a, some isolated deal. It was, I mean, this was a big church in a big city. This pastor, his, I used to pastor his parents. I know the guy. The headlines read, so-and-so, at certain first at certain church in certain town resigns his pastorate and admits homosexuality. I read that story, I couldn't believe it. Stunned me. Most unbelievable thing. When I read that, you know what the first thing I thought was, how can God bless that kind of a, that church where that's going on? I mean, they have, they're, they're building a big multi-thousand seat auditorium and they have so many folks, they have two or three services. How, can, how does God bless that? That's the question I thought. But the longer I looked at this text and the more I considered that in prayer, the more I thought of this. God in His sovereign will will bless anybody He chooses and when the Holy Spirit is in control of a place where He's sovereignly blessing, that kind of stuff cannot exist. God will bring it out. He'll expose it. And I remember that, that times in my life when, 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 the, when our church is flourishing and the Holy Spirit is at work, one of the saddest things, that there'll always, it seems like it'll be a, some of my ch best church members, it'll, it'll come out that they're doing some, you know, some sin. And I always say, well, it's just the devil trying to destroy our work. Maybe that's right. But maybe it is the exact opposite. Maybe it's the fact that the Holy Spirit is in control and He's not going to allow that to exist. He's going to purge that. You can count on it. He's going to do it for three or four reasons. I want to brush them that I'm through. He's going to do it because He wants to purify the church. Now some of us who are praying for revival, if we really knew what revival was, we'd probably quit praying for it. Because the revival begins in brokenness and it goes from there. And the purification of the church, which revival is, involves the crucifixion of the self-life, the crucifixion of the flesh, and crucifixion is the most painful death of all. And when he wants to purify, he reaches to the, to the coals of the altar, as in Isaiah's experience, and he brings hot coals down and places them on the unclean. And that's painful. 
He wants to purify the church. He wants to bring fear upon the church. We got this good old God theology going around. You know what fear means? In the, in the Bible, you know what the word means? It means reverential awe. It means respect. And we talk about the good old God, my good old buddy. Listen, he is not your good old buddy. The God of Israel is a holy God who wants reverential respect. You look at the people who come to church on Sunday morning, see how much respect they have for God. Lightly and trivially, we come in and handle His Word. Let me tell you, He wants us to come into this place with shudders and trembles as though we're stepping on holy ground. You look at the tithing record of a church and see how much respect there is for God. You look at the visitation on Monday night. Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. See how much respect there is for God. He brought fear upon the church. Oh, that we'd have that baptism of fear that would cause us to look at our anthems to see if they were mockery, to look at our hymn singing to see if it was a sham, to look at our testimony to see if it was genuine. There is a, a sense in which the symbol of the church ought to be the mother church with its arms outstretched to the world, but there is also a sense in which the symbol of the church ought to be a sword and a fire to bring fear, reverential respect, awesome respect for God. He's going to deal with insincerity because he wants the church to grow. Now the amazing thing about it is that verse 11 said they didn't want to join, folks didn't want to join that church. I don't, that's the understatement. They, I don't blame them, do you? I mean, they've seen God working there. They didn't want to join, not for me. They didn't want to join that church. But the next verse says, that many signs and wonders were performed and the church grew greatly. Which says to me that the ones who joined there really meant business. The ones who joined there really meant business. And the people who came and dared step into the place where the Holy Spirit was in control really meant business about where they were doing for God. He's going to deal with insincerity because he wants the church to be distinct. Now it says this. Did you catch that? It says the folks had, did not associate with them anymore. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, here were these church folks. Here was this folks in town. They didn't associate with them anymore. But it says they respected them. They saw that the people who belonged to this group were of such that they were different. Finally, he deals with the church like that, like that because he wants to be the church. He wants the church to be an instrument of healing. And so they had the sick and they just brought them out in the streets just so that the shadow of Peter might be cast upon them. Oh, listen to me, my friend, carefully. It is the church that has been purged, purified, cleansed 
that becomes the instrument of healing. Whether it is healing of mind or body or spirit, it is from judgment to healing. That's the movement of this narrative. For it is always true the church pure is the church powerful. And you can check back all through the record and you'll find that numbers were not that important in the economy of God. Numbers were not that significant to God. It was quality that counted to Him. It was a church that had the quality of purity about it that God used as an instrument of healing. Now, what do you do about the sin of insincerity? You repent of it. And you get honest with God. And you tell God what He already knows, what you've lied to yourself. Lord, I'm not what I've said I am. I'm not what I pretend to be. I'm not what I ought to be. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you'll take the words of my mouth the meditation of my heart and the heart of these who have listened, that they'll be acceptable in your sight. And may your will be done with what has been said in Jesus' name. Now there are three decisions that we have to make. If you've not received Him, then you've rejected Him. Have you ever invited Jesus Christ into your life? Have you been really honest with yourself and with God about this? Would you like to come this morning and say, I want to get everything right. I want to be saved. I want to accept Christ as my Savior today. Second decision is for those who, feel, who feel led to place their life in the church. Do you feel God leading you to put your life here? We invite you to do that today. If you'll come, we'll explain how that works if you don't understand it. You just say, I want to join your church. We'll visit with you about it. Or maybe there are those of us who need to take the mask off today. Be honest with God about our own life, the condition of our own heart. Would you do it? By the mercy of God, I plead for you to do that now. While we stand, while our choir sings, we invite you to come.